Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about redemption, you can go to redemptionchurchseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. All right, it's good to be with you. My name's Drew. If you're a guest, I'm one of the pastors here as well, along with Alex and Ben and Mike. And if you've been with us over the past several weeks and even before this new year, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And today we come to the most well-known, the most popular prayer ever, and that is the Lord's Prayer, the example that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 6. And you might say, well, is, it, is this really something that's more than what, you know, high school football teams and college football teams uh, just rehearse before they go out and play a game? Yes, it is. It actually has a lot in it that Jesus is trying to show us and teach us and even challenge us with. Now, I'm going to share something with you uh, really personal, so, so don't judge me for this. Um, as I've gotten older, especially over the past few years, I go to bed earlier. In some of you, that might be the same. If I'm not in bed by 9.30, things usually don't go well for me the next day. But this past uh, Friday night, check this out, I stayed up till 2 a.m., all right? Whoo, man. And you might be saying, oh, like what concert did you go to? Uh, Did you go to a party? Did you hang out down in Ballard? What did you do? Here's the personal part. No, I was watching Olympic curling (laughs) until... 2 a.m. and just could not break myself away from it. Are there any Olympic junkies in here? You love the Olympics. You watch it all. Absolutely. Even the parts you don't understand. What's interesting is I actually came across this article uh, this week as I was preparing for sermon today, and it was um, a study done of Olympic medalists, those who had won specifically silver medal and bronze medal. And they surveyed them and they asked them how they felt about winning those medals. Now, you might think, well, obviously, you'd rather win the silver medal than the bronze. But that really wasn't the response. In fact, the response overwhelmingly was those who won the bronze medal were elated just to win a medal. It's amazing, right? The Olympics. Those who won the silver medal said they felt like losers because they didn't achieve the gold medal. Which really shows you that it's interesting. It's all about perspective and the way that you approach that. Because obviously the silver is better than bronze, but because of the perspective and the way that the medalist approached that, one felt like a loser, while the one that actually finished worse off felt great because they medaled at all. Now what does that have to do with today? Well, today as we look at prayer, this very intimate opportunity with God, I think a lot of times we may approach prayer the wrong way and we end up having some frustration. Depending on our perspective as we come to God in this opportunity of prayer, I think we can either experience things like joy, peace, comfort, satisfaction, hope, and freedom, or we can experience frustration, which for all of us in here, this is not what God wants for us. He doesn't want us to be frustrated as we commune with him, as we communicate with him, as we share our lives with him in this intimate thing called prayer. And so you might be saying, wait, So you're saying there's a right and wrong approach to prayer. I thought that I could approach prayer however I want. I thought that I could say whatever I want. You absolutely can, and and God does want to hear from you, and he'll allow you to. But just in the same way that you can also approach your spouse however you want, and you can say whatever you want to your spouse, or you can approach your kids however you want, or your friends or a family member. You can say whatever you want, but it might not have the best outcome. I think it's very similar in, in prayer, and I think there's a lot of confusion when it comes to prayer. I think this is something that's oftentimes misunderstood within our faith, and even within the church. 
And so Jesus, he cuts right through as he always does, and he makes it abundantly clear. He tells those during the Sermon on the Mount, here's how you approach prayer. And I think for all of us, no matter who you are in here, no matter if you've been a Christian for years and years and years, and you would say you have a really good prayer life, or this has been a struggle for you, and honestly, you've kind of stopped praying. You've kind of put it off to the side. Or whether you're in here this morning, you don't even have a relationship with God, and you're like, yeah, I want to learn more about prayer. There's going to be something for us in here if we'll open up our hearts and minds to it. So if you want to, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. There's a Bible in front of you as well, and it will also be behind us on the screen. We're going to start in verse 5 of Matthew. Last week we looked at giving, how you should give to those in need, and this week we look at the Lord's Prayer. So let's start in verse 5. Here's what it says. Here's what Jesus has to say. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. The hypocrites, what we see there is he's talking about the religious leaders, those who practice righteousness from an exterior performance-based sort of angle, but really their hearts were wicked on the inside. And so it wasn't that they were saying the wrong things and not following through, but it was the way that they were doing things was wrong. It was coming from a very wicked heart. And so he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Just like last week, when you give to those in need, don't be like the hypocrites. And it's important, exactly the same as last week, he says, when you pray. Last week he says, when you give to those in need, meaning it's assumed for the Christian whose life has been changed, whose life has been dramatically altered because of Christ entering in, there are certain things that are assumed, and one of those is that we as Christians are going to communicate with God through prayer. Not that prayer is an obligation, but it's a gift of communication with God. And the amazing thing about prayer is sometimes you may think this is the first word, it's actually the second word. Prayer is the second word because God's already spoken the first word through the Bible and through creation. And so prayer is our response because of what he's already spoken, what he's already told us, the good news of the gospel back to him. And so this is what it looks like to pray when you pray. And so the first question here that I would just ask, honestly, is prayer a regular part of your life? Maybe it's not. Maybe for some of you, if you're being honest right now, you'd be like, you know what? Prayer life, not so good. Um, can't even remember the last time I prayed. Outside of maybe a prayer that I did with kids or a prayer that I shot off you know, before a meal, I, I don't really remember the last time that I spent quality time with God in prayer communicating with him. And my guess would be there's probably a reason for that. Maybe, maybe you've prayed some prayers and those prayers have not been answered the way that you've wanted them to be answered. And so you've pushed prayer kind of off to the side. You're not sure that God really cares about the request that you bring to him. Maybe you're not sure that God really even hears or cares to hear the things that are going on in your life. And so you've, you've, you've kind of come to the place of, ah, prayers kind of take it or leave it. Maybe you've just thought that prayer is kind of this optional thing in the Christian life. So the first question here, is prayer a regular part of your life? And if it's not, would you examine, would you allow God to show you, why is that? Why is that that you're not communicating with God in a real, meaningful way? Why is that that maybe that has stopped? You know, for me growing up, I stopped praying. I can remember long seasons of, of, of stopping praying, and it, and it absolutely had to do with the way that I approached prayer and the way that I approached God. As I was tracking this week back to when I was younger and earlier in, in my relationship with Jesus, there were really only three categories, three reasons why I prayed. One, I prayed scared. I don't know if anybody can relate with that. <laughs> Something's gone down, you've either really messed up, uh, you're afraid something bad's going to happen, you had a weird test at the doctor's office and you're not sure what's going down, and you come and you prayed scared. 
kind of please God, just save me. I'm going to toss this up. Hope that you hear it. Hope that you forgive me. Whatever it is, I'm coming to you trembling. And that's one of the ways a lot of my prayers were scared prayers. Or another way that I found myself praying was with an agenda of demands. Can anybody relate with that? Come to prayer, you're like, here's my list. Here's my, here's my Santa Claus list, Christmas list. I would like this, I would like this, I would like this, I would like this. And some of those completely legitimate. <laughs> Things aren't going well. Life is tough, right? But you come with a list of demands that you bring before God. I really need this to happen. I really need you to do this. I really need you to change this. If you don't, I'm not sure how I'm going to keep going. I'm not sure what's going to happen. And so you come like that, right? Or the last uh, way that I found myself praying is, is this, and maybe you can relate to, as a last resort. That you've tried everything else, you've tried to fix situations on your own, you've tried to change circumstances, you've tried to do everything else, and finally it didn't work, and so it's kind of like, you know what, this is my last resort, I'm going to toss up this prayer, and God, I hope that you're going to hear it. And so because I approached prayer that way, I found myself praying less and less and less and less regularly. It was only when things seemed to be going poorly, <laughs> or there was a last resort that I would come to God and I would actually speak with him, and I, and I absolutely just had the wrong approach. So do the religious leaders here. There are two reasons that they prayed in the way that Jesus calls out and says, don't pray like this. So check this out. Look at these next verses. He says, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Their reward is being seen by others. God's got nothing for them in that. But when you pray, Go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they have heard for their, they think that they are heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. These two reasons here that Jesus calls out. First one, to use God to impress others, praying on the street corners, right? We're going we're gonna to look at a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor way back in the day, but he talked about this really interesting person he worked with once, and he said, every time he would pass him in the hallway at the church, the guy would drop down to his knees in prayer. And he said, I felt bad, but I really wondered, does he really need to drop down right there like that every time just in the hallway? There seems to be something off with that. And that's kind of the idea here. Why are, you, why are you doing that? Why do you feel the need to be seen by others to put on a show, and that's what the religious leaders were doing, praying on the street corners. They were using God to be seen by others, and he's saying, don't do that. And the second way is they were trying to impress God with many words, and he's saying, you don't need to do that either. You don't need to do that either. So you might ask, well, it says here that you should go in your closet, shut the door, and pray. Do I literally need to do that? No, the answer there is, is no, you can but that'd be real trouble for us, especially here in Seattle where you can't afford a closet. So we'd have a lot of issues. So it doesn't literally mean that you need to go in your closet, but it's what Jesus is getting to. He's pointing out this idea that, hey, this is a time between you and me. This isn't something that you need to put on a show with. Can you pray publicly? Absolutely. We do it all the time. Which shows that Jesus is doing what he always does. He's getting to the heart. He's getting to the motivation. He's asking these questions of us so that we would reflect on our lives. That prayer isn't about being seen, and it's not about impressing. I remember as a kid growing up in youth group when I would be asked to pray, I was like, oh gosh, here we go. And I would whip out some $5 words that I didn't even know what they meant, right? It's like, oh Lord, high on your mountaintop, may the 
glories of the earth shine upon it's like oh my goodness what is this prayer that you're offering up and it was this internal need to feel like oh man i really need to i really need for people to see that i've, I've got it going on here that i know what i'm talking about or that i'm holier that i'm righteous and god's saying that's not it at all he's saying that's what the hypocrites do he's saying i know what you need even before you ask it and so jesus moves from here he doesn't just leave us there and say so don't do this he says but here's how you should approach god in prayer Here's this model that I'm going to give you. Now, as we look at this, does this mean that every time we pray, and you can pray, you can pray wherever you want. You can pray in your car. I would encourage you to. You can pray at home. I would encourage you to. Pray at your work. I would encourage you to. Does this mean that every time we need to hit these exact words, that we need to hit these exact themes? No, no, no. It's, it's much more about the heart and motivation. Not a time, not a place, not the exact content. And so take that in, in stride as we look at this. As we walk through this, watch how this example from Jesus really releases us from the frustration that I think many of us can feel in prayer and often experience because of how we approach it. Verse 9, pray then like this. He starts off, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father, love this. Can you pray to Jesus? Can you pray to the Holy Spirit? Yes, you can. But throughout Jesus' ministry, what he shows us is he prays to the Father, and he tells us to pray to the Father who hears us, who wants to hear from his children. And so oftentimes we do pray to the Father who is in heaven. This is what we see from Jesus. This very personal, even with the use of that word Father, as Alex mentioned, this very personal relationship with the Father that we, if you have a relationship with Jesus, have because you're one of the children of the Father, that he wants to hear from you that he wants to commune with you, that he's spoken through his word and through creation, and he's speaking through the Holy Spirit, and he wants to hear from you as well. That's what we do when we come together in prayer. This word hallowed, we don't use this very much. We don't walk around saying this very much. What does it mean? Holy, righteous. God, our Father in heaven, holy, righteous be your name. Would your holy name, as you are above everything else, would you be holy? Would you be over everything? Would your righteousness spread? It's a recognition of a reverence to a God who's absolutely worthy of it. And that's why Jesus starts in this way, by being reminded of who you're speaking to. You're not just speaking to some God made out of wood. You're not just speaking to another person on the street. You are speaking to the God, the creator, the one who was able to speak everything into existence, the one who is literally holding everything together right now, the one who is holding you together, the one who is putting breath in your lungs, this is no small thing. This is no small God. And so before anything else is said, it's a recognition of the person of God that you are speaking to. Our Father, hallowed be your name. This humility that comes. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I love this. Your kingdom. What we're praying for there is we're praying for the ex two things. The expansion of God's kingdom here on earth and that Christ would come and he would reconcile everything and make it right. As a church here in Green Lake, we want to put a heavy, heavy emphasis on this. For those who have been redeemed by God through Jesus, how can we not want to see the gospel, the good news spread to other people throughout our community? That should be on our hearts. That's what Jesus came to do. That's why this is really the first request that's made in this prayer. Would your kingdom come? 
Jesus, would you, would you spread the good news throughout? Jesus, would you save people? Jesus, would you save my neighbor? Would you save my friend? Would you redeem this city? Would your kingdom come down here and now? As your kingdom is growing, would it expand through the hearts of men, women, and children that they might know you, that they might experience your grace? And then Jesus, would you come again? Christ, would you come? Would you make everything right? Because it's not right in the here and now. There's brokenness, there's hurt, there's pain. And so would your kingdom come in its total fruition? That's what we see here in this prayer. Before any personal requests are made, the request is focused outwardly. John Stott says this, he says, to pray that his kingdom come is to pray both that it may grow as through the church's witness, people submit to Jesus, and that as soon it will be consummated when Jesus returns in his glory to take his power and reign. I love this. Would your kingdom come? But then he says this. This is one that I think is where some of this frustration might start to come in in how we often approach prayer, at least how I often approach prayer, and I think many of us do. Wrapping up with this, with this phrase that I think we have more problems with than we might like to admit, which really gets to the heart of this whole passage in our heart as well. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. You see, in heaven right now there's no hurt. In heaven right now there's no pain. In heaven right now, there's no confusion. In heaven right now, there's no frustration. In heaven right now, there are no miscarriages. In heaven right now, there are no divorces. There are no fights. There's no abuse. There's no firings. There's no cancer, no infertility, no loneliness, no mental illness. There's no shaming in heaven. There's no genocide in heaven. There's no addictions in heaven. In heaven, there is no death. There is only life. There's no death. There's only life. That God's will of redemption, perfection, joy, holiness is happening right now as he rules and he reigns in heaven. And it's a good thing and a necessary thing that God's people would pray that we as Christians would want to see that flood down into our world. Is this even on your heart, even on your radar as you approach God in prayer? Personally, for me, a lot of times, absolutely not. Because I've got my own things and I've got my own agenda items and I've got my own things that I want to hit. And I'm often not thinking about the incredible need for God to come flood in and for the desire to, for Jesus to come and make everything right with finality. But this should be on the heart of us as Christians. Now we would ask this question, especially with your will be done. What if or what about when God's will is not my will? This is where that tension comes in. What about when God's will is not my will? Well, let's, let's look at this next verse here. He says, give us this day our daily bread. I can only imagine that Jesus may have been referencing back to Exodus, Exodus 16. What we see is that the people that had been freed, they were literally relying every day on manna coming down from heaven so they would be fed. It was daily. It wasn't like today. There weren't grocery stores that you were rolling around to. You didn't have Amazon Fresh that could come right up to your doorstep. There was a reliance that, God, I can't provide on my own. I can't make this happen on my own. In fact, if you don't provide for me, I'm going to literally starve. And this is something that I think we're very disconnected with. We're very disconnected because we have so many things at our fingertips. We can often move into this realm of not really believing that we need God's provision every day, and that could not be more untrue. 
It is God that is sustaining you in every single way possible. It is God that has created the ability for us to even take in food, for our bodies to function correctly. It is God, absolutely without a doubt, that is sustaining all of your life every single day, that allows you to wake up every day. Would you give us this day our daily bread? This means that we don't look to other things outside of God to provide for us. We don't look to the stock market to provide for us. I don't know if you noticed, stock market had one of the worst weeks in 10 years this week, so we definitely don't look there. We don't look to our jobs. We don't look to our careers. We don't look to a relationship with spouse or kids to provide everything that we need to make us whole or to provide all those provisions. No, we look to God who gives us our daily bread. Now, here's, here's where we get into really the thick of it. Here's where we get to the heart that we've just said in the previous verses, Jesus prayed that your will be done and then give us this day our daily bread. Meaning needs over wants. That you would meet our very basic needs. First and foremost, that doesn't mean that we can't pray for things that we desire. In fact, we all have desires. We all want certain things. Something more, some things more badly than others. And so this can become a little bit of a gray area for us because we don't know exactly what God's will is, meaning we don't know exactly what is going to play out in our life, what he's going to grant us, what he's going to offer us, all of those things that we might ask for. We may not know. We don't have the picture to the future that says, yes, if I bring this request, God is absolutely going to give this to me. We don't know that. And so this can become sort of this area of tension because we, a lot of times, as Christians, you can bring really good requests to him, really good desires to him. I'm sure that you have good things. And that's why I believe this is one of the greatest areas of tension in the Christian life is when you bring those good requests and God doesn't answer them by giving you what you've asked for. Because the question then is, what do I do now? What if you don't get what you desire? What if it never comes? Seriously, here in this life where you're living right now, what if it never comes? What if the things that you bring to God, what if you don't get them? Do you turn your back on God? Do you find another religion? Do you decide just to go it alone? If you don't have the right perspective, if you don't have the right approach, maybe. Maybe. If your heart isn't in the right place, maybe. Maybe, maybe that happens. The right perspective mean, means this. That we understand that God is not painting the picture of our life simply based on on the reality of here and now. That you were not simply created for these 70, 80, 90 years on earth, and that's it. But that God has created you to be an eternal being, one that lasts forever, and that your eternal reality is going to be much greater than your reality here and now, right here on this earth. And it takes this perspective, it takes this approach to not simply find frustration in prayer, but to be able to humble yourself to God's will, to God's desire for your life. Now, this isn't to say that you push away pain, sadness, feelings that come with desires that don't come to fruition, but it does mean knowing that God has a plan, and that God's plan is far greater than what we see, and God's plan goes far further than where we might think that it goes. This plan is for good, and it's not simply to live in the here and now. That we come with this eternal perspective that brings a sense in, of peace in knowing that things will get better. Things will eventually get better. 
hope that comes in knowing that Jesus is going to reconcile everything to himself, that his kingdom coming in the sense of everything will be made right because of what he did on the cross, that we find at least some sense of peace and comfort in that at this current state, that we can approach him and say, okay, your will be done. I know you've promised to provide my needs. God, I I don't fully understand why you're doing this or why you're allowing this or why you're not taking this away or why, why this isn't changing. But I know that in the long run, I know that in the eternal perspective, you've got me and your plan is good and I can trust you. Perspective that turns our hearts from God, I just want more from you, to God, I just want more of you and as long as I have you, your will be done. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he also says this, and it was so good, I just wanted to read it to you, especially when it comes to this connection between God meeting our daily needs and his greatness. He says, is there not something extraordinary and wonderful about the connection between his request and the previous requests? Is not this one of the most wonderful things in the whole scripture, that the God who is the creator and sustainer of the universe, the God who is forming his eternal kingdom and who will usher in It at the end, the God to whom the nations are but as small dust of the balance, that such a God should be prepared to consider your little needs and mine, even down to the minutest details in this matter of daily bread. But that is the teaching of the Lord everywhere. He tells us that even a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without our Father, and that we are of much greater value than many sparrows. He says that the very hairs on your head are all numbered. If only we could grasp this fact that the almighty Lord of the universe is interested in every part and portion of us. There's not a hair on my head that is not concerned about. And the smallest and most trivial details in my life are known to him on his everlasting throne. This is something you find only in scripture. You go straight from thy will be done in earth that is in heaven to give us this day our daily bread. But that is the way of God, the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy who nevertheless, as Isaiah tells us, dwells with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. This is the whole miracle of redemption. That is the whole meaning of the incarnation which tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ takes hold of us here on earth and links us with the almighty God of glory, the kingdom of God, and my daily bread. That God knows you and he knows what you need. And he knows your heart. The creator, he knows where you're hurting today. He, he knows... He knows your requests that you've made to him or the things that are on your heart. He knows them before you've even said them or before you've mentioned them. And and I think for many of us, this is one of the things that can lead us to push away from prayer, to give up on it, or for it to become uh, a lot less regular. Because some of the requests that we've brought to God have not been answered the way that we've wanted those to be answered. And I think where that should lead us is not into a place of shame because we can bring any request to God. God makes that clear but to evaluate, are the requests that I've brought to God, are those demands? Or are they under the auspice of thy will be done? God, ultimately it's up to you and I can trust you. And this is why the next part of this prayer fits so perfectly, because not only will he meet our daily needs, but he's met our greatest need. And I I love this. And forgive us our debts as we also forgiven our debtors. You might say, well, is this, the, is this a prayer of someone who doesn't yet know Jesus? No, this is the prayer of a disciple that you would forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. This isn't the prayer of a lost sinner seeking a pardon. 
The goal of this prayer is not salvation, but it's the renewal of its joy to be reminded of God forgiving us of our debts as we seek to forgive others. It's a reminder, it's being reminded often of the forgiveness that we've been shown as we seek to show that to others around us. That we need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of that in all of our relationships because we can become hard-hearted a little bit where we don't want to offer forgiveness, where we don't want to forgive that other person. And the best way to move in the direction of forgiveness is to turn around and see how much forgiveness has been in your past, what Jesus has offered you all the way back to the cross. And sometimes we need that. Often we need that. Daily we need that. Because people are going to hurt us, because people are going to sin against us. And either we can develop a hard heart Or we can continue to turn around and say, oh man, yep, I've been forgiven by you. Remind me of this daily because I need to forgive somebody else. And so that's what it's really getting at here is that we would be reminded of the debts that we've been forgiven as we forgive others, that we would extend that grace and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you deliver us from evil and temptation? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the idea of protection from the outside and the inside. Evil meaning from the outside, that there are all kinds of things, there are all kinds of things in the world right now in our culture that will try to and are trying to pull you away from God, to convince you that Jesus is not the way, to convince you that there's a better way, to convince you to go it alone, to be independent, to do it on your own, to try to convince you, oh, see, he didn't come through on that like you asked for, and so you can't trust him. There are all sorts of evils in the world all around us. There are things happening to others that are horrific. There are mass murders going on, and we could look at those and we could say, man, this really doesn't seem in your control. God, what are you doing here? And that could lead us to give up on trusting in God, seeing that he absolutely is control. And so what Jesus shows us here is that we should pray that we would be protected from evil, from evil on the outside, from anything that tempts us to move away from Jesus, but also temptation on the inside, from our own flesh, because every single day there will be temptations that come that will also try to pull us away from Jesus. And so as we approach prayer, we need that. We need that provision and protection. We need it from the outside. We need it from the inside. God, would you keep me? As one of your disciples, would you keep me? Now this final piece here, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may notice if, you, if you're looking at your Bible right now, especially ESV, that's not there. Um, in some of the older translations, that is there. And then in some of the more modern translations, it isn't there. And there's been much debate. Was this in the original manuscripts? Was it not in the original manuscripts? Some say yes, some say no. Um, You can debate about it all day long. But I've included it because I think it really is a great way that this prayer would end. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Meaning that in the same way that it began, it ends. Father, hallowed be your name. Man, your kingdom come. And then this reminder at the end that ultimately... Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever. Ultimately, you are in control. I can trust you with this. I can trust you with my life. A son or daughter that's coming to the Father, the creator of the world, completely safe, completely loved, completely heard, completely known. This is how we should enter prayer, and I believe it's how we should exit prayer. Knowing that we're heard from a Father who loves us knowing that we're heard from a father who's going to meet our needs. He's promised it. He hasn't promised life's going to be easy. He hasn't promised we're going to get everything we ask. And he can relate with our hurt and pain in that. 
but he's a God that can be trusted. That's how we enter and how we exit. And it ends with these few verses here. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither your heavenly Father forgive you of your trespasses. Really what this points to is I think it's a reflection on the changed heart, the changed life of a Christian. As Jesus was saying, don't be like the hypocrites, those who look like they're changed on the outside, but really they have wicked hearts. I think what he's leading us to and what he's pointing out again is really with a changed heart, it automatically pours over into a changed approach, into a changed perspective that we forgive others because of how we've forgiven, because of how we've been forgiven, that our approach is so important when it comes to prayer, because it reveals so much about us, about how we see God, how we see ourselves, and how we view the purpose of our lives. It's not about manufacturing the right words, it's not about putting on a performance, it's not about trying to wheel and deal with God, it's not, it's not about that. As Jesus always shows us, it's it's not about the performance, it's about a relationship. What God wants is a relationship with you. That's why Jesus gave his life for you. That's why we're able to be forgiven of our debts because of what Jesus did in order to forgive us of our debts. Because God actually wants to know you and he wants to commune with you. And so the only way to really approach God the right way in prayer is to understand the gospel. There's just no other way about it. Really, I don't know if you know this or not, but this prayer is very similar to what Jesus prayed at the crucifixion. He said to God, your kingdom come and your will be done. He trusted the Father with his life and then he allowed himself to be crucified. And because of that, you could be forgiven. Because of that, God's kingdom could come into your life. Because of that, you could have assurance that he'll provide for you daily. But here's two things that Jesus left out. He didn't call him Father. It's the only time he doesn't do this. You see, at the cross, Jesus and the Father are disconnected for the time, and the Father has to turn his back on his Son because his Son took on our sin, our unrighteousness, all of it. All of the ugliest things you've ever done, all of the ugliest things you've ever will do, the things that you've thought, the way that you've treated someone, Jesus took all of it on himself, and the Father turns his back. This division in the relationship He doesn't refer to him as father here, and he also doesn't say this. He doesn't say, deliver me from evil. Instead, Jesus took all of our evil so that we could be delivered from it. This is why we can come to God in prayer, trusting him with everything that we bring, with everything that we share, with everything that we say, because of what he's given us through Jesus, because of what Jesus has offered us through his life and death, And if you don't have a relationship with him, or you haven't accepted this gift that Jesus offers of grace into your life, he offers that for you today, the same as he has for thousands of years. He offers this to you, and this is really where it begins and where it ends with Jesus, the gospel. This is what leads us to approach God this way. So how do we avoid frustration through prayer, and how do we instead, as we are commanded and should have this regular communication with God through prayer. That should be a regular part of our life. How do we find peace, joy, freedom, hope, all of these things? Ultimately, what it comes down to is we approach God with submission. We submit our lives to a God who is worthy and who can be trusted. That we trust Him with our life now and we trust Him with our eternal life even if that means that all of our desires are not met in the way that we would hope that they would be. 
that we believe that he has good for us, that he believe we has a better plan because he's secured our salvation so that we're able to say with satisfaction, my Father in heaven, holy and wonderful and above all others is your name. Let your kingdom come and save many and let me be a part of bringing it. Let your will be done in my life and in the earth as it is in heaven. Give me all that I need for today and remind me of how you've forgiven me of my sin while I forgive others. And God, keep me out of temptation and keep evil from destroying my life. Yours was the kingdom and the power and the glory that you willingly gave up out of great love. You turned your back for a time so that I could share in it with you forever and ever. Amen. We have a good God who can be trusted. We have a God who is worthy. We have a God who hears us. We have a God who wants to hear from us.